Some years ago, I was flying through Newark here uh, to get back to Atlanta, and I'd come from somewhere overseas. I think it was Bangkok, and I landed in Newark. I always say after those long flights, the only good news is that you look like your passport picture, and the immigration <laughs> officer recognizes you right away. So I'd gone through that and went to the gate where the flight was to leave for Atlanta, but it showed a different city. And so I tapped the lady on the shoulder sitting at the edge. I said, excuse me, is the flight going to Atlanta or is it going where the marquee says it's going? She said, oh, no, it's going to Atlanta. I said, that's good. So I turned around to get myself a cup of coffee, and I heard the patter of feet behind me, and it was the same lady, and she tapped me on the shoulder. She said, excuse me, are you Ravi Zacharias? I said, I'm afraid so. She said, that's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I didn't think you had questions as well. Uh, that really did happen. I don't have an imagination to make up something like that. But people have these uh, ideas that just because you're in Christian apologetics, you know, you don't think things through or you don't ask questions. You're like a answering machine. You put in the right coin and the right answer comes out. Uh, that's not the way it works. I was on a television program this morning and uh, they were answering, asking a question about prayer. How come some prayers are answered and some prayers are not answered? And you're given about two minutes in which to give the answer. Uh, that's about, unfortunately, what happens sometimes for very profound and elaborate questions. We like very simple, poignant answers and say, that checks that one off. It doesn't work that way. Life itself is a pursuit of one question after another. From the time we are little children, we start asking. In fact, my mother once said to me, where do you come up with all these questions? Uh, and we've got grandkids now who are asking all kinds of questions. Life is a process of finding answers, both propositional and relational. Many of the answers are oftentimes not in propositions, although propositional answers have to conform to reality in the way you are raising the questions. But relationships often bring the context within which those questions are often answered. And that's why sometimes even somebody like Job, who raised question after question after question, and he had three horrible friends who came, and uh, the best time in that relationship was when they had said absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that's why today, if you go all over the world, chances are you'll never find anybody named Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zohar. <laughs> uh, Actually, I have met one Bildad, but I don't know what his mother was thinking when she called him Bildad. But it was fascinating how at the end of it all, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see him in my flesh. That relationship, that relationship which provided so much more for him than what the three boys were trying to tell him in very, very simplistic answers. People often ask me a question, do you, when, do you, when do you get time to read or to think? If you fly as often as I do, you get a lot of time to read and to think. And you are oftentimes on those long hauls pondering a lot of things. Sometimes those 14, 15 hour flights, when you feel you should have had a couple of birthdays en route, you just think of a lot of things. And one day I was thinking, one flight I was thinking, is it possible, now this may surprise you, is it possible to have a real close walk with God and be totally fulfilled at the same time? Now you may think the answer is readily obvious and it ought to be, but on the other hand, why then do we wander away from that path? If that total fulfillment is already there, why do we take off, to, take off on these boulevards or other exploits? They say stolen waters can be sweet or whatever. We think there is something on the other side that we have not yet really experienced. So the question often is, what does a person who truly walks with God really look like? I want to help answer that question, but first let me 
answer it in a lighthearted way. This little guy uh, wanted a blue bicycle and he didn't know how to really pray for it. So he started watching Christian television programs. And he watched one of these high church programs and he learned how to pray from that. And so at night he went to bed and he said, eternal and everlasting father, if it is in your perfect plan for me to have a blue and white and silver bicycle, may it be delivered to me tomorrow morning. <laughs> World without end. Amen. <laughs> and in the morning he went out and there was no bicycle. So he decided he'd watch another Christian program. So that night he went to bed and he said, Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle. And I pray that it'll be silver and blue and here by 5.30 in the morning. And he went out in the morning, looked out, there was no bicycle again. So the next morning he's wandering around the house and he sees a statue of Mary in the house. He tucks it under his shirt and he goes outside and hides it in the woods. And he comes back and his mother saw him on his knees saying, Dear Jesus, if you want to see your mother again. <laughs> uh, I hope I didn't offend you. This may be the last time I'm coming, Carter. I don't know. But you know, if we form our theology... If we form our theology or our worship sometimes by things we watch or things we hear, we may do some horrific things and think we are really following God. And that's why as wonderful as experiences, as powerful as experiences, the word of God reminds us that it is ultimately his word that abides forever. <laughs> Peter, Peter had one of the most extraordinary experiences that no human eye had ever contained. In fact, if you were to ask me, if you were to take the biblical story, the entire gospel, and had one sermon or one experience with Jesus where he was performing his miracles or giving his message, which would it be? I have a tough time choosing between the walk on the Emmaus road, listening to him connect all the dots of history, or the experience of observing the transfiguration. Because Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain, and they witness the transfigured body of our Lord in that whitest white glow that the human eye could contain. But not just that, they all of a sudden see two of the greatest heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. You could imagine for these young Jewish men what an extraordinary sight that was. The thundering prophet Elijah, who overcame the prophets of Baal. Or Moses the great deliverer, and our Lord himself so beautifully transfigured. Peter comes down, and what does he write in his letter? We are not following cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And you would do well to pay heed to this as a light in the dark place. And then he goes on to say this, but now we have the word of the prophets made most certain. And that's when he says, you would do well to pay heed to this as a light in a dark place. This is really that eternal light, that transfigured thrill of being, of witnessing that was momentary, but all of those have a shelf life. All experiences have a shelf life. It doesn't last you forever. You always want another one to bring you up to date, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So I'm going to read for you from the word and point you to a man who I think demonstrates for us how it is you follow God with a whole heart and be completely fulfilled in that walk. 
I'm reading to you from Daniel chapter 2. And my message is entitled, Marching to a Different Drummer. And here's how it begins. I'm sorry, I'll I'll read to you actually from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. There he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonian and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Notice now, please. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to define himself this way. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sounds like the earliest Babylonian law firm. These guys were actively involved now as captives, and they are being treated very differently to the rest of the captives because they are being programmed. They are being conditioned as the best and the cream of the crop to be used then to get the exiles to finally turn against the nation from whence they had come in order to become subjects to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very smart man. Let me say something to you as gently as I can. The laws of moving the young from one country to another, getting them settled, teaching them the language, and reprogramming their minds in a different way of thinking has been a common practice in many, many a conquering, by many, many a conquering king. And that's exactly what is happening here. Get these boys softened up. Give them the best kind of food, banqueting at the king's table. And so we've got Nebuchadnezzar here, working his plan, his mystique, and his will. He's a demagogue, he's a leader, he wants to conquer the known world of his time. Very seldom does it really follow through and come to fruition because sooner or later, somebody stands against a demagogue like that. Percy Bysshe Shelley, writing years ago, says this, I met a traveler from an antique land who said to vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, stamped on these lifeless things. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And you can go to the desert area someday, and as you're riding through on a horse or whatever, you'll see these broken statues with a frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command that tell the sculptor, well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. One of the most memorable scenes in our lifetime 
would be the dictator of Libya, out on a lonely road somewhere, once upon a time dominating the masses and inflicting pain upon pain upon pain, till he himself was literally pleading like a king without a horse, asking somehow that he be treated with the respect that he ought to be treated, thought he, as a king and a ruler. That's the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. In fact, Saddam Hussein said he was patterning his leadership going back over these 2,500 years to bring back Babylon its glory days and lead once again. So he brought these boys in, training them in the literature, the language, and the philosophy of the Babylonians. Do you notice what he's doing? Language is indispensable to communication. The philosophy and the literature is indispensable to illustration. So the language enables you to bring the argument. The literature and the philosophy brings to you the story and the windows that open to let some kind of light in. And so what is really happening here is he is training and reconditioning them both with the power of reasoning and the power of story and illustration. That's why the famous political activist once said, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Because the truth of the matter is, through music, through story, through illustration, you can completely enter through the back door of imagination and even overcome the front door of reason. And that's precisely what's happening here. He's conditioning them in every way. And when you look at these men, it is amazing to see how it is that they responded. The first is this, because, you know, they're marching to a different drumbeat. They're marching to a different sound. They are listening to a different voice. These are the countercultural people who are learning how to respond to a culture that is against the grain and against the values of their belief. And may I suggest to you, if ever we are living immersed in a culture that is contrary to biblical values, that's contrary to biblical absolutes, this is the time we are living through right now. All definitions have gone. Think about it. All absolutes have gone. Relativism reigns supreme. And what relativism actually means is that it is only relative to you. It's not relative to anybody else. Justice was always intended for the other person's benefit as well. So all we hear is rights, rights, rights. Very seldom do you hear of what is right. <clears throat> if all we focus on is an individual right without thinking of what is absolutely right, you will end up in a, in a course where culture is in collision with itself because each person assigns to himself or to herself the right that is self-reflective and self-propagating. What does Daniel do? What is the first thing he does? He drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. He drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. There was nothing wrong with him enjoying the meal at the king's table. It was a luxury. It was a beautiful privilege. I have a friend who loves to go to the big buffets and he says he gets it from the Bible because Paul says to buffet your body. <laughs> Always enjoying all of the varieties, all of the nice foods and so on. Well, you know, once in a way it's great to do that. But you do it as a habit, you do it as a constant desire and you find you really can't because you can't afford a new tailor every day to get the, all the expansion that is taking place within you. But more than that, it dulls your sensitivities. He drew the line of resistance in order to train his appetite. Ladies and gentlemen, 
appetites need to be trained. It doesn't happen overnight. How you react in life is a training of the will and a training of the mind. That's why Jesus says to let the eye be single because the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the light within you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. May I suggest to you, almost every kind of sensual temptation starts with the eye. Starts with the eye gate. And that's why what did Satan do to our Lord himself? Showed him all the kingdoms of this world. That I power. This is wow. This is beautiful. This is enchanting. I'll give you all of these things. If you will bow down and worship me. The amazing thing to me is that these young men. With strong appetites and certainly a desire for the best of culinary options. Said we are not going to do this because if we do this we will get so softened up. That ultimately we will be drum marching to his tune and to his drum beat. We lose the purpose for which God has really placed us here. You know in any palace. Even if the monarch is not walking to the drumbeat of God, I found it amazing how many times God puts a person in that palace who's marching to a different drummer. You've got Joseph, you've got Nehemiah, and here you've got Daniel. They're listening to a different voice, marching to a different drumbeat. This idea of training the eye gate and training your will and training your appetite is a very hard thing to do. You know, I was in a country that I leave unnamed and I had just sought a meal to have all by myself. And as I sat down quietly all alone for the first time in about three days to have one meal just so I didn't have to use my voice and answer questions. I sat down and a guy was walking by my table and he kept looking at his cell phone and looking at me. I said, I know, what's, I know exactly what's happening here. <laughs> and you almost at that moment feel like this dinner is over. I'm heading back to my room. And then he comes and he kneels by my side and shows me my picture on his telephone. <laughs> he says, this you? I said, what do you think? He said, now that I've heard your voice, it is you. <laughs> I don't know this guy. I had no idea who he was. He told me which country he came from. He wasn't a citizen of the country where I was. And then he looked at me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, I listened to your podcasts. I listened to your messages. I really want to love the Lord. I want to serve him completely. My enslavement to pornography is killing me. He was in his 20s. And I put my arm around him and started talking to him. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't even know this guy. Just think how painful it must be what he is living through. For him to come to a total stranger, at least in terms of a face-to-face -face encounter, and the uppermost burning question on his mind was, can you help me get rid of what I am addicted to? I take you back to some years ago where it was late at night and I had received a telephone call. It's always wonderful to have my wife with me, by the way. We don't often travel together. Uh, they begged the grandchildren have beaten me to the draw. She is, they've always got a greater need than I have. And she'll tell you, for Ravi, his worldview changes after 9 p.m. I don't think anything good comes into my life after 9 p.m. So I'm in bed reading. I want to be horizontal by that point and probably just look at another dawn. I don't want to go into the lateness of the night. I'm an early riser. So anybody who phones me after 9 o'clock, it's either an emergency or they've got the wrong number. <laughs> so I picked it up, and it wasn't the wrong number. It was somebody who knew me very well. He said, Rav, are you awake? I said, I am now. <laughs> he 
He said, I got a problem I want to talk to you about. He was a surgeon. And he said, I've been doing surgery all night. And this woman was brought into surgery. She was so badly beaten. Every bone was broken, basically. The bigger ones were shattered. And when the paramedics wheeled her in, they said, Doc, she's gone. No point dealing with it. She's gone. But he said, I looked at that broken body and I said, there's no way this can happen. I had no idea what had gone on. So he told the team he was going to scrub and do whatever he could. He put his gloves on, everything. And he said, the only hope was to give her a direct heart massage and see if I could revive her. They tried everything else, pounding on the chest and all. So he cut the rib cage, put his hand directly into the chest cavity, took the heart in his hand and started to give it an actual direct heart massage. And it didn't work. He walked away from there and he said, whatever happened to her? Who did this to her? So he's washing his hands when the nurse comes and says, Doc, I think you better look at this. She brought a bag, emptied it out onto the table. She was a drug junkie. All kinds of used needles in there. And as he was looking at all that stuff, he noticed in his haste to put his hand into the ribcage, he'd nicked his finger. And as he looked at that nicked finger, slightly bleeding, whatever, he said, I think I've made contact with diseased blood. I said, is it a deep cut? He said, no. It's a paper-thin cut. I said, now you're telling me a paper-thin cut could put you at risk to destroy your whole immune system if you've made contact with that kind of diseased blood. He said, it doesn't take any more than that. A paper-thin cut. Albeit at one point, even the gloved hand. And I remember when I finished talking to him and he said he'd gone and given some blood for a test and he said a complete a comprehensive answer can only come in a few days but I'm just hoping that I've not destroyed my body tonight and I put my head back on the pillow and I thought to myself are there paper thin cuts to the soul can you make that little slight laceration that makes you vulnerable and exposed to something that can destroy your spiritual immune system. So especially to you young men, I say to you, what are you toying with? What do you hold in your hand? What do you see on your phone? What have you allowed the world to have access into your soul? that gives those initial paper-thin cuts that down the years can put your marriage and everything else at risk. So I had my arm around this young boy in his 20s from another country as his face was just covered with tears and people looking, saying, what is going on here? This guy is sitting here having his dinner. Another fellow comes and then starts talking to him and now he's kneeling beside him and crying his heart out. Because he knew that he'd got some pretty deep wounds into himself. If that's your case, tonight should be the night you turn things around. That you make that commitment that you turn to God for healing. That you turn to God for strength and power as has been so beautifully sung in many of the songs. And I say to you, draw the line of resistance to train your appetite because whatever you feed into your imagination takes hold and wreaks havoc. And in the years to come, you find out it didn't happen overnight, but a little at a time, a little at a time, and a little at a time, and you lost your way. We travel all over the globe. One of my colleagues is here. We travel all over the globe and we listen to stories. And that's what we hear again and again and again. I made this choice. I went there. I did this. Ladies and gentlemen, march to the drumbeat of God. March to the drumbeat of God. Because his word, his word abides forever. And it is vital that you learn that the world will be there to always tempt and test 
And God's will for you is always to know how to say no to the things that will lead you astray so that you don't have to look back and say, when did this all happen? So he drew the line of resistance to train his appetite. But number two, he drew his line of dependence. He drew his line of dependence on going beyond knowledge to wisdom. He drew his line of dependence on going beyond knowledge to wisdom. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And he had this dream of a massive statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, a midsection of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And the stone cut out of no man's hand comes and knocks and breaks the statue to pieces. And he has this great dream repeatedly and he says, what on earth is happening? It was a culture within which dreams meant an awful lot and still do to this very day. And so he's having this dream Gold, silver, bronze, iron and, iron and clay that is right at the feet. And the stone cut out of no man's hand is knocking this huge statue down. And he wants to know what this dream means. And so he looks at all of his magicians and enchanters and says, you guys come and tell me what this dream actually means. And they said, we'll be happy to tell you if you tell us what the dream was. He says, uh-uh, you're not going to get away with that. If you are so smart, you tell me what the dream was. And then you tell me what the interpretation is. You know, I come from a culture where all kinds of magicians and all kinds of astrologers, all kinds of palmists do all kinds of things. And they come and tell you all these massive stories. My favorite one is when I was a young, uh, young guy growing up, my mother brought this fellow to read our palms. Now, palmist read, palm reading and astrology was an avocation. His actual vocation was selling saris. So he would come to the door, open up his trunk, and then he would offer to read our palms. So my mother sat all of us kids down one after another, told him to please predict our future after reading our palms. And he was giving all these glowing reports to my older brother and uh, with my brothers and sisters. And then he looked at my hand and he went like this. <laughs> Ravi Baba, bahut kharab khabar hai. Those of you who speak Hindi, he says, Ravi, little boy, I've got very bad news for you. I said, what's that? He said, looking at your palm, you're not going to travel very much in life. I don't know what he's doing for a living now. <laughs> but I hope his sorry business is going well, or else he's gone into weather reporting, which is about the only thing you can keep doing and be dead wrong and still have an audience. You know. <laughs> so there he was, palmistry and all this kind of stuff. That's what's happening here. You guys are enchanters, you're magicians. Tell me what my dream was. And the guy said, you know, this dictator is looking for a reason to kill us. He knows we are not going to be able to tell him the dream, but this is what he's trying to pick a fight with us. So the word comes to Daniel. What does Daniel do? He goes to God in prayer. He says, God, I need your wisdom. I don't know how to do this. There is no way I'm going to be able to tell him what his dream is, but I need your wisdom. And he tells the steward, he says, look, I can't tell, us, tell this dream. I don't have the learning, but I need God's wisdom to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, how important it is to seek wisdom and to follow it. Seeking wisdom is just half of the battle. Following it is the very important part of that. Distinguishing where it is that God is really leading you. And as you seek that wisdom, I tell you how important it is in our time to have wisdom to know how to respond, what to say, what not to say. I find myself on a platform in many parts of the globe and asked a question. And halfway through the question, I know for sure there is no way I can answer that question without God's wisdom. There's no way I can answer that question without God's wisdom. So 90% of the time as the question is being asked, I am praying for divine wisdom.
Do you need his wisdom today? Do you need that wisdom today? That wisdom to know what to do and how to do it. So critical. I want you tonight to just seek the mind of the Lord to reveal to you what he wants from you and the wisdom of what to do and what not to do. It is critical that you follow along in that. I remember some years ago being with the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and we were five of us on a peace mission talking to the leaders from both sides in Jerusalem and in Israel. And we'd finished talking to many of them, and on the last day we were talking to one of the guys who was a well-known terrorist he had founded one of the leading terrorist organizations. So strong guy, spent many, many years in, in prison as well. And he was an angry man. He was flinched, fists clenched, and he was just shaking and talking. The room was full of tobacco smoke. And as he argued for his position and his view, I knew we were not going to get anywhere. Finally, the archbishop looked at the five of us guys and said, why don't you all ask him your question? I'll give you a chance to ask him one question apiece. So my turn came, and it's a private meeting, so I won't tell you what question I asked, but I asked the question, and I didn't like the answer. So I looked at him, and I said, Sheikh, I really don't like your answer. I was already shivering in my shoes. I'm wondering if my grave was going to be in Ramallah by the next morning. <laughs> so I said to him, I don't like your answer, but I just want to say to you a couple of things. I said, Sheikh, not far from where you and I are sitting, 5,000 years ago, a man by the name of Abraham took his son up a hill in order to offer him as a sacrifice to God to demonstrate his faith. I said, do you remember that story? He said, yes. I said, please, Sheikh, let's not debate which son. But Abraham took his son up that mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God. He said, that's right. I said, as the ax is about to come down, God stops that hand. He said, that's right. I said, what did God say? He just looked at me. I said, God said, stop. I myself will provide. He said, that's right. I said, Sheikh, very close to where you and I are sitting. 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise. I said, God took his own son up another hill. And this time the ax did not stop. He just stared at me. I said, Sheikh, until you and I receive the son God has offered, we'll be offering our sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position and power and land and prestige. He just stared at me. The archbishop said, ah, I think it's time to go now. <laughs> so we we're walking down the stairs and the archbishop put his arm around me and he said, you know, Ravi, that was of God. I said, I sure hope so. <laughs> so we went down. But the archbishop was the guest of honor, so the sheikh was ushering him to his car. And all of a sudden, I heard running behind me, and I turned around just in time to see it was the sheikh coming after me. You know, I have two titanium rods in my back, four clamps, eight screws bolting me down. And if that guy even were going to hug me, it would be curtains. So he just turned me around, and he said this to me. He said, Mr. Zacharias, patted me on the face, kissed me on both sides of the face. He said, you're a good man. I hope I will see you again someday. Until we receive the son God has offered, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position and power and land and prestige. I didn't think that up, I want you to know. It just came at that moment where I just said, God, I don't know what question to ask him. Help me. And when he answered and I said, God, I don't like this answer. Help me. And in that moment, God gave me those words. 
you may be in a situation today where you need wisdom to say something right. And deal with it in the right way. Seek his mind. Seek his wisdom. And I tell you what Daniel says to me is, with all the knowledge that we have, it is not enough. We need wisdom. Look at how much knowledge we have in our time, and yet we lack wisdom in so many different ways. Our whole world is falling apart politically, and we desperately long for wisdom from somewhere. Hopefully, it'll be from God. So he drew the line of resistance, he drew the line of dependence, and lastly, he drew the line of confidence. He was confident that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would not abide forever. It would only be God's kingdom that would abide forever. Augustine, his conversion was dramatic. And as the barbarians were scaling the walls of Rome to destroy it, he wept in his home in Carthage. And that's when he wrote the city of God. There's the city of God and the cities of men. As my brother so well said before we took Holy Communion, how he reminded us when he said, this world is not our home. This is not our home. We are renters. We rented this place very, very temporarily. We are here for a while and then we're gone. You know, my wife's mother is 99 years old. And she's lived a very beautiful life. But now all of a sudden, the mind is beginning to go. Even this morning, she'd been with her mother for a week in Toronto and then came here straight from Toronto. So the mother phones and says, now, what did we talk about when you were here? And there's something very important they talked about. Very important. And this is the third time she said to her, what did we talk about when you were here? Suddenly the memory is failing. The coherence is failing. And one day the heart will beat for the last time. I challenge you. Our life is like a vapor. It is here for a moment and it's gone. As I stand before you, I'm 73 years old. I started ministry when I was 26. 47 years have gone by. They've gone by like that. They've gone by like that. And all of a sudden, you know you're closer to the finishing line than you are to the starting line. And I urge you, settle it with God, whatever needs to be settled. And you could be confident, absolutely confident, that your life is in his hands. This morning on the television program, they were gracious enough, you know, television time is expensive. They were gracious enough to ask a question and one of the hosts said to me, you know, some prayers are answered, some prayers are not answered. How do you explain that? They had three different worldviews being represented. Mine was the Christian worldview. I said, in the Christian worldview, prayer is not a grocery list of requests before God. I said, Jesus himself, before he went to the cross, said, if there is any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. I said, prayer is not seeking to change the will of God. It is communion with the living God such that he will change you to have the ability to receive what it is he has for you. That's exactly what it is. It is a relationship. 
I didn't have the time to tell them, but you know Robert Browning's poem, when I see children ride a cock horse, I find it in my heart to embarrass them and tell them they stick some more horse and they really are carrying what they say carries them. You know, they get these sticks as little kids hop around thinking the stick's carrying them. Actually, they're carrying the stick. <laughs> if you're a praying Christian, your faith in God will carry you. If you're not a praying Christian, you will have to carry your faith and you'll get exhausted trying to carry the infinite. And so, have the confidence that his will is perfect for you. I close with this little quotation and then an illustration. I bring this to an end. It is this. Malcolm Muggridge said this. The world's way of responding to intimations of decay is to engage equally in idiot hopes and idiot despair. On the one hand, some new policy or discovery is confidently expected to put everything into the rights. A new fuel, a new drug, detente, world government. On the other hand, some disaster is as confidently expected to prove our undoing. Capitalism will break down, fuel will run out, plutonium will lay us low, atomic waste will kill us off, Overpopulation will suffocate us or alternatively a declining birth rate will put us more surely at the mercy of our enemies. In Christian terms, such hopes and fears are equally beside the point. As Christians, we know that we have here no continuing city, that crowns will roll in the dust and every earthly kingdom will sometimes flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone. As we are citizens of a city of God, they did not build and cannot destroy. Thus the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, living in a society as depraved and dissolute as ours. Their games, like our television, specialized in spectacles of violence and eroticism. Paul exhorted them to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in God's work, to concern themselves with the things that are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It was in the breakdown of Rome that Christendom was born. Now in the breakdown of Christendom, there are the same requirements and the same possibilities to eschew the fantasy of a disintegrating world and to seek the reality of what is not seen, the eternal reality of Jesus Christ. As I walked through your street for a moment yesterday and my wife and I went out for dinner, I had a memory, a flashback. First time I came here, meeting David Wilkerson. It was the first book I ever read after my conversion, The Cross and the Switchblade, in India in the mid-60s. And I saw David walking in the street, and he stopped and recognized me, and we chatted. The time came where God called him home and handed the baton to this lovely couple, Carter and Teresa, and the team they lead. And the time will come where God will move the baton to the next generation. We're not here forever. We're not here forever. God buries his workmen, but his work must go on. Amen. Those are the words of Charles Wesley. Drawing the line of, dependent, of, of uh, dependence and drawing the line of confidence, but starting with drawing the line of resistance. Resistance, dependence, and confidence. Draw the lines in the right places. Will you do that today? Resistance, dependence, confidence. Draw them in the right places. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. I have made it my prayer. O thou who camest from above, pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up thy gifts in me.
ready for all thy perfect will, by acts of faith and love repeat, till death thy endless mercy seal, and make my sacrifice complete. Till death thy endless mercy seal, and make my sacrifice complete. What does a man or woman of God look like who will follow him and be totally fulfilled? Look at the life of Daniel and draw the lines in the right places. You will see what a person looks like. I know there are students here from Summit. I congratulate you for studying, for what you're doing and how you are doing it. You will be carrying the baton into the future. <laughs> Carry it well. And may God be with you. God bless you. The Lord Jesus Christ is encouraging us as his people to draw the lines in the right places. Make the right choices. Whatever you have to break from, break from it now. Whatever God's word is leading to you, get up and by the strength of God's Holy Spirit, with faith in the promises of God, begin to take that journey. Whatever that journey is, I believe that Christ is coming soon. And until the day he comes, you and I are going to have to go through some, some dark waters. It's going to be difficult in the days ahead. But God promises to be our strength. He promises to be our life, our guidance. He says he'll be the light in our eyes. He'll be the voice that says this is the way, walk in it. But it's up to you and I to make the choice. How are we going to live? Where do we need to draw the lines? What do we need to get away from? Where do we need to go? This is the second time today you've heard the same message. Mind you, not as articulate this morning, but it's still the second time that you've heard it. I want to challenge you, especially young people here that are here today. It's, it's going to be you that has to carry the torch now. And you have to make right choices or you'll be an irrelevant voice in the days ahead. You'll be a powerless argument. When God's spirit is the spirit that's leading you, when God's word is your guide, when God's strength becomes your strength, when God's wisdom becomes that application of knowledge in your mind, you will make a difference. Your voice will be a voice that has to be reckoned with. You will live to see God do things through you that only he can do. But you need to make the choice. There's a point in every life. There was a point in mine and there's a point in yours where you, you step out from the crowd. And as that song that we sing, the old rugged cross, though none go with me, still I will follow. I don't need the crowd with me. I need to know that God is with me. And I'm going to step out from where I am and I'm going with God and he's going to become my strength for the future. There's a lot of young people that are starting to come to this church, but coming to the church doesn't mean that your life is going to amount to the fullness of what God intends it to be. It's you now stepping out from the crowd. You and I making that choice saying, God, I want my life to make a difference. I, I want to be a young person or middle-aged or even an older person in this generation that really stands out and becomes a voice, becomes a light in this darkened time. So I want to challenge you. I want to give an altar call. We're not going to rush out of here today. And I'm going to ask uh, Brother Ravi to come back and pray for you in just a moment. But I want to just, Greg is going to just lead us in one song, or Ivory will. And if, if God's speaking, in the Annex too, in the overflow rooms as well, God's speaking to your heart and saying, I want to be a part of that generation that makes a difference, especially now. Especially in this season where there's uh, an ideology that wants to take the whole of the culture captive today. I want to stand up, I want to stand out, and I want my voice to count for the kingdom of God. If that's you, would you just start slipping out wherever you are, up in the balcony? You can go to either exit in the main sanctuary. Just slip right out and just come on down. Young people in particular. Uh, in New York, that means 50 and under, okay, if you're young. <laughs> but young people in particular, and, and don't forget for the older folks that Jesus does save the best wine for the end of the feast, the end of the banquet, and the glory of the latter temple is greater than the former. So don't, yeah, don't, don't write yourself off. Don't, don't say I'm too old or my day has passed. Don't fall for that lie. You'd be amazed what God can do through a surrendered vessel. So wherever you are, just slip out and make your way down. Come in close. Make room for everybody that's coming. We'll sing one song. Then our brother's going to come back and pray for you that your life really, truly will make a difference in the days ahead. Can I say one more thing? It's so wonderful to see you all up here. 
you have really responded to the invitation of Christ. That's what you've come forward for. And I'm going to pause silently for about a minute or so and say this. If you have never done this before, if you have never really given your life to Christ, please come. This is your moment. Don't put it off. Because it's very easy when the heart is touched to say, ah, if I can just weather this moment, I'll be fine. I'll get out of here without doing it. No. If you get out of here without doing what God is asking you to do, you'll never really get out. The hound of heaven will be on your trail. And he will follow you because he loves you. And he will not let you go. So as we're waiting silently, if you have never done this before, upstairs or on the annex, wherever, please come to the front. God has his invitation open for you. And this may be the moment to see things turn around. Thank you. We waited. Please come. some coming from upstairs yet so I'll wait just a moment thank you coming. that's very important especially if this is the first time for you that you talk to somebody in the church here somebody with a badge somebody who recognizes one of the counselors one of the ushers just say I need somebody to pray with me I'm going to pray for you. But it would be wonderful if somebody prays with you so you seal it as an individual and resolve in your heart not to follow the king's edict, but to follow God's will. That's what God wants. Shall we pray? Lord, it is my honest prayer that you will be pleased tonight. That you will have in your heart that which you tell us you have when even one comes home. That there is rejoicing. That there'll be rejoicing in the heavens this hour because those who have been prayed for have struggled, have made this walk to surrender to you. I pray for those who have never done this before, doing it for the first time, that like the waiting father, you will come and embrace them and welcome them back home. Because that which was lost has been found. Father, for those who've come because of the tenderness of their hearts, they have heard your voice. Thank you for that sensitive spirit that they take that step courageously to tell others, I'm with the Lord. I'm following him. For those who've had to make hard decisions tonight to turn their back upon that which destroys and come to that which heals and restores. Let it not just be a walk for this hour. Let it be a walk for the rest of their lives. Walking with you in lockstep with your will. I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful place where for decades now people have met and worshipped. Thank you for the music that we've heard. Lord, it thrills me to know that someday we'll all be singing like ivory. And have a voice like that. Or play the instruments as these men and women are playing them. Because you've promised to put that new song in our heart and then give us a new voice. Let your benediction rest upon these in the front, but indeed upon the whole congregation. I thank you for Carter and Teresa and their labor of love. You alone know the cost, but you also know their heart. And for the team you have put around them, without whom they would never be able to do this. 
Bless the leadership. Bless this ministry. For one day, Times Square will give way to eternity's landscape. And we all await that day. Let your benediction rest upon us. Thank you for giving me the strength to deliver this message. May all honor be yours. And evidently, Lord, you ordained it such that the same truths will be stated twice today. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? You are sovereign and you are gracious. Dismiss us with your blessing. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.